Please remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's Word. We are continuing this morning our study through the Old Testament book of uh, 1 Samuel, and we're in 1 Samuel 30. And uh, you can open there in your Bibles if you have a Bible with you. And uh, we'll be studying 1 Samuel 30, and then the last chapter of 1 Samuel we'll look at on on New Year's Eve, which is a, a, a Sunday. And then we'll be returning to the Gospel of Mark, our study of the Gospel of Mark. But uh, today, we're looking at the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 30. This is God's Word. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his son and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those uh, who were left behind stayed. But David pursued. He and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake uh, of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because... I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band." And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that uh, they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been 
too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Pezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that uh, we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his life and children his wife and children, and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Then David came to Ziklag. He sent uh, part of the spoil to his friends, uh, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in, in Ramath of uh, the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aror, in Ziphmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of uh, Jeremilite, and of the Jeremilites, in the cities of the, uh, the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your holy word, and we pray that now the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and lead us to our Savior Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can notice that our, our topic this morning is just war theory, which, is, uh, which answers really the question, can Christians ever think that warfare is just or righteous in God's sight. And uh, you might think that's a strange topic, especially for the Sunday right before Christmas. But of course, uh, there are wars that are raging around the world, and the one that's most in the news right now is between Israel and Palestine. And so uh, certainly, just war theory is a relevant topic uh, in our day. But warfare is also a major part of what Christmas is about, and you might remember in the Christmas narrative when it, it talks about the shepherds that were keeping watch of the, uh, over their flocks by night, and there was a multitude of angels that appeared to them singing, and the glory of the Lord was shining around them, and what did the multitude of angels say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Christmas is about the coming of the Prince of Peace, and because of that, Christians have always had quite a lot to say about war and peace in the nations around the world. And so uh, today, I'd like to help us have a Christian view of how to think about warfare, and particularly the wars that are, we're thinking about right now. And so to do that, we're going to look at three questions from 1 Samuel 30 this morning, and this is what the three questions are. First, how does this passage relate to the current war in Israel? Second, what does this passage teach us about just war theory? And third, how does this passage point us to Jesus? 
Okay, so three questions. How does this passage relate to the current events that are happening in Israel right today? What does this passage, second, what does this passage teach us about just war theory? And third, how does this passage point us to Jesus? And I think this is probably more of a teaching kind of sermon, lots of subpoints, you know, as we go along. But I really hope this is helpful to you, and I hope it sparks conversations in, uh, in your homes, in your families, as you think about how the Bible applies to every aspect of human life, whether it's individual human life or the lives of nations. And so we're going to see that this morning. So three questions. The first is this. How does this passage relate to the war in Israel? And you notice how this passage begins, verse 1. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. Now the Amalekites were a particularly wicked people group in the ancient world. They were wicked for, for many centuries, and then they first kind of appear as Israel's enemies. If you know the story of the Exodus, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, and then there were these wandering nomadic people in the wilderness, very vulnerable, and they were attacked by the Amalekites. And so these, these you know, runaway slaves are being attacked by the Amalekites, and this deeply angers the Lord. And maybe you know the story where Moses has to hold up the staff in order for them to win the battle, and he has people helping him on either side. Well, that's the Amalekites. And so after that time, the Lord promised that he would judge the Amalekites for their wickedness. Well, you see that the same brutality of the Amalekites in that earlier story shows up in this passage. And you, you see it in the second part of verse 1 there where it says, They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Now, I know for me when I read these verses, it immediately brought to mind the terrorist activities of Hamas on October 7th. Uh, wicked men preying on unarmed women and children, kidnapping them. This is exactly what happens in the story. Uh, and um, all the innocent Israelis who were taken hostage, and, and in this case, actually, many were uh, women, children, elderly, murdered, raped, kidnapped, burned. An absolutely horrendous and despicable act of evil. And actually, uh, Peter Lighthart is a favorite theologian of mine, wrote an excellent uh, piece on the Gospel Coalition just six days after those events on October 13th. And uh, the, the title of his article was, Hamas is Borrowing Tactics from the Amalekites. And he's referring to stories just like this one from First uh, Samuel 30, talking about the Amalekites, borrowing these ancient tactics. And this is what Lightheart says. The tactics Hamas used on October 7th were Amalekite tactics. Hamas isn't the only terrorist group to fight like Amalekites. For decades, terror groups have used women and children as shields. Indonesian Islamists deploy women as suicide bombers. Boko Haram uses children as human bombs. And terrorists in Afghanistan have killed pregnant women and babies in maternity wards. And then he goes on and says, among the six things Yahweh hates are hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. That's Proverbs 6, verses 17 and 18. And so, as many of people have pointed out, the wars that we're watching being raged have been in the region really for thousands of years. 
And there's been uh, various ways that Christians have thought about uh, the conflicts that are happening in the Middle East. So, for example, one you know group of thought is uh, in more kind of liberal mainline uh, churches is what's called uh, replacement theology. And if you don't know what replacement theology is, it's kind of the idea that the Israelites were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and then Jesus came, and now the, they are no longer God's chosen people. They've been replaced by the church, and now the church is God's chosen people. So there's, there's no kind of continuing significance of the people of Israel. And so uh, many people who hold to a replacement theology then end up being pro-Palestinian. And so you can see how the theology is shaping the politics. Uh, in a similar way, uh, many evangelical churches have uh, believed in dispensational theology, which sees uh, the, the forming of the state of, of Israel as a key fulfillment in, in end times uh, prophecy. And, and dispensationalists tend to see that, that Israel and the church have kind of parallel purposes for God that are leading up to the coming of Christ and the consummation of all things. And so, you know, fundamentalists, dispensationalists, evangelicals, tend to be very uh, pro-Israel and, you know, uh, maybe, maybe un- uncritical of, of Israel. Our church is, is neither of these theologies, not replacement or dispensational. We believe in covenant theology, which says that Israel was the church of the Old Testament. There's always been one people of God, and Jesus came as the true Israelite, And he was the king of the Jews, and now he opened Israel to Gentile peoples. Most of us are Gentile peoples on the far corner of the earth to be engrafted into Israel. So we're like these wild olive branches that have been engrafted into the people of Israel. So we and he is the true Israel. And so, in terms of the the promises about that the strip of land in Palestine, where the Canaanites live, the promised lands, we believe that the land promises have now been expanded to the whole earth. So that's what Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's not just that little piece of land. And actually, if you read the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says that the promise made to Abraham was not just that he would be heir of a small piece of land, but that he would be heir of the whole world. And so in covenant theology, while we believe God still has purposes associated with the Jews, we do not believe those purposes are particularly tied to the promised land, or to the modern secular state of Israel. And so, uh, our focus in thinking about these conflicts is about applying the ethics of Jesus' kingdom to this situation. And so, this leads uh, to our second question. So, first question, how does this passage relate to the war in Israel? Well, on the one hand, while we see that Hamas is borrowing tactics from the Amalekites, and we see how deeply God hates this, We cannot make clear one-to-one parallels between the Israel of the Old Testament and the modern secular state of Israel. So then, this leads to the second question. What does this passage teach us about just war theory? What does this passage teach us about just war theory? And, And part of the reason I think the topic of justice is so important is because we live in a generation that has been deeply influenced by Marxist ideology. And Marxist ideology is founded on the premise that all of human history is a story of oppressed people revolting against their oppressors. And, you know, of course, Marxism is a self-defeating idea because if you believe that people who are in power are always oppressors and you give power to oppressed people, what will they become? 
oppressors. <laughs> and actually, that's what happens over and over again is oppressed people revolt, they get in power, and they become just as bad oppressors as their oppressors were. And so Marx's thinking has led to unthinkable bloodshed and injustice over the past century. And it informs a lot of the way that many of us think about justice. And so we have to think about a Christian theory of justice. And so what I want to do in this point is list off four principles of just war theory from this passage. And there's usually more points than that. I had like six originally in here, so I had to pare it down to four. So I'm kind of summarizing maybe more like eight to ten points of just war theory and trying to summarize it in four. But what have Christians said that makes for a just war? Principle number one. A just war has a just cause. A just war has a just cause. A just cause uh, is about the reason that you're going to war. You can't go to war because you want to steal your neighbor's land. And, you know, many of the wars throughout history have been empires that are wanting to expand their empire, and so they steal land from their neighbors. It's not a just war. Augustine said this, saw this in the Roman Empire, and he says it's not just. And you can see that David's warfare in this passage is clearly defensive warfare. You see it in verse 4 there, how it says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept, until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And this verse, you know, really, I think it reminds us of the, Israel, uh, the, the Israelis in the days following the attack that had come upon them. You imagine these same things, weeping until they had no more strength. And so the Amalekites had raided David's village, and so his military action for the rest of the story is a response to their wickedness. And that's what makes it a just cause. Now, I think something, though, to point out here is notice what happens in the midst of the pain and the violence that's been done to David and to his men. Notice what happens in verse 6. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When you have been violated, it is easy to see how this bitterness can turn into a terrible kind of violence. And in this case, they said, we're going to stone David. We're going to stone our leader. Because they've been hurt so badly and they're just lashing out against their own leader. And it's not hard to see how a just cause can easily turn into an unjust cause. And actually, Lightheart makes this point in his article. He says, even in their response to Hamas, or in their response to Hamas, even Israel risks becoming a mimetic mirror of their enemies. When you have been harmed, part of the devastation is you turn into the person who's harmed you. How many of us in our individual lives, when we have felt hurt or wronged, acted out in a way that we regretted? The same can happen with nations. We can't give carte blanche support to everything Israel does in response. And that's why Augustine, in his just war theory, said that the goal of a just war is always a just peace. You're always trying to create peace. Or G.K. Chesterton talked about the intention of a just war he said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. He loves the peace that he's trying to create, okay? So principle one, 
is a just cause. But clearly the people saw that David was their leader, and he is responsible for the protection of his people. And so what they expected from David leads to a second principle of just war theory is what's called legitimate authority. A just war is administered through a legitimate authority. So that means individuals can't say, I'm going to declare war. You have to be like someone who is an authority over people that can represent the people in, in, uh, in the war. Um, and Romans 13 speaks of political rulers this way. This is what Romans 13 says. For he, the, 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 the magistrate or the, the, the governor, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so the power of the sword is only given to legitimate authorities, and that power has been given to them by God. And they have an obligation to use that sword in lawful ways. And you can see in this passage, as David uh, prepares to go to war, he begins by receiving instructions from the Lord. The first thing he does, he goes to the Lord. Look at what it says, verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And so David has been anointed king, which means he has been given authority by the Lord himself, and so he is a legitimate authority to defend his people. Now, the reason this is important is because one of the main arguments for pacifism among Christian pacifism is that a pacifist will say, well, you know, the Ten Commandments says you shall not kill. And so if a Christian is not supposed to kill, how could you ever go into warfare, participate in a war, advocate for a war? And uh, part of the problem with that reasoning is that the Ten Commandments come from the Law of Moses, and the Law of Moses says that there are certain authorized killings that God has authorized. So, you know, if you murder someone, that's a capital crime, and you were supposed to be put to death in ancient Israel. So when God says, do not kill, he's clearly not talking about authorized killings. Even God said to the Israelites they were supposed to take over the promised land, which involved killing many people, and this was authorized by God. And so... Um, so what's being forbidden is killings that have not been authorized by God's moral law. And some of you might hear that and think, well, aren't there all kinds of people who said that they were serving God when they went to war? Isn't that what Hamas would say? Is that, well, we're, you know, we're going to war because we're serving God. And what's the answer to that? Just because someone says they're serving God doesn't mean they actually are. The people who crucified Jesus thought they were serving God. And, um, and I think that ultimately, just nations will only happen when nations submit to the, the law that God has given to us in his word. And we can't just imagine, we say, well, this is what I think God's telling me to do. What does God in his word say? That's why nations and cultures need God's word to direct them in the way of justice. Now, I imagine even hearing this probably makes some of you uncomfortable to think that God authorizes any killings. And of course, the Bible is very clear that the Lord is, has the keys of death and Hades. The Lord decides when we're born. The Lord decides when we die. And so he has control over our life. But that's related to a third principle that's probably the most relevant in the war in Israel right now. So we've seen that a just war has a just cause. It has a legitimate authority. 
The third principle of a just war is, is non-combatant immunity. Non-combatant immunity, which means you try, try not to kill uh, and you don't target civilians. And this question has been all over the news, especially in the last few days. Israel has been demanding the release of the hostages from Hamas, and they've said they'll continue their devastating attack on Gaza until the hostages are released. And the U.S. government is now putting pressure on them to let up on, on the, the war that they're waging. And, well, it turns out what happens next in this story that we're reading is David encounters a non-combatant from among the Amalekites. Uh, he's a man who's uh, wandering in the open country. He hasn't eaten, drink, had any food or drink for three days. And you see what it says there in verse 13? It says, And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So here's a guy who was a part of the raid that resulted in the burning of David's village. He was a part of it, but he's also saying, don't send me back to my master. I don't want to live with them. They're terrible to live among. And don't kill me. And so it seems that, uh, that he's spared. And what I think that means is that a general principle is that non-combatant immunity should be a goal. You do what you can to spare civilians. But I think this is where we begin to see that just war theory is, is ultimately just that. It's, it's a theory. And basically no war in the history of the world has ever passed the test of these principles. Uh, there's never been a war that didn't have civilian casualties. And John Frame, uh, is, he's a theologian. He's written a book called The Doctrine of the Christian Life that has a section on uh, just war theory. And uh, this is what Frame says. He says, I agree that an army should never directly target non-combatants. However, it is very difficult in many wartime situations to avoid killing and wounding them. And then he lists all kinds of terrible situations that soldiers find themselves in. And uh, he even lists things that sound very, he wrote this 15 years ago, but he talks about hospitals being like uh, uh, military outposts and children being used as weapons. And because of this, he says, there is no absolute principle prohibiting the killing of any civilians at all. In Israel's wars, many civilians were killed, sometimes by divine order. Why would the Bible say that? Because it's reality. The Bible's not, you know, dealing with some very perfect world that, you know, of how we wish things to be. The Bible is dealing with the reality of a fallen world, and that's what the world is really like. And Frame makes one more point that I want to point out that I think is really important. This is what he says. There is a corporate principle that people die for the sins of their representatives. There is something tragic about this, but it's inevitable. When a father sins, he endangers his family. When a ruler sins, he endangers his people. Further, the civilian population is not entirely blameless. For a despot often enjoys popular support in his rise to power and his martial exploits. 
And what Frame is basically saying is that God has made his world covenantally. We are all bound together, and we're bound to our leaders. And it's supposed to be that your, your leaders' are, our goodness spills over in blessing to you. You know, if you have Jesus as your king, he's your representative, and his, the fruits of his death and resurrection just pour over to you. He shares it with you. But also, if your king is Hamas, you will share in the fruit of their decisions as well. It is the very nature of God's world. Now, this does not mean that we think, well, you know, that's what you get, Palestinians. Absolutely not. You certainly have Palestinians who oppose Hamas. You also have many who support Hamas. You know, there's probably different statistics on this. I've seen them, that some that maybe a majority have supported Hamas. Maybe more are going to support Hamas after their, you know, cities have been, has been devastated. But there are also thousands of Palestinian Christians It's all so sad and tragic. And so in this passage, David comes upon the Amalekites who are basically partying after all the stuff that they've stolen and all the people they've kidnapped. And so David strikes them down. And you see in verse 18 what it says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and he said, this is David's spoil. David's goal is restoration, setting things right, restoring of a just peace, and that should always be the goal of a war. And when a people have a love of peace, I think that it leads to one more principle of a biblical view of a just war. So what we've seen so far is that a just war has a just cause, legitimate authority, non-combatant immunity, though that never happens perfectly. It should be the goal. But the last principle is the importance of mercy. Humans must not lose their connection to mercy. And one of the most tragic things about war is that it changes the people who are in the war. And what happens in this passage, you know, David's men return from the battle and they have all their stuff back. And there were these 200 men who didn't go to battle with them because they were exhausted. They were too weak. They couldn't cross the the brook. And so David has said, it's all right. You don't have to come to the battle. And so... um, And so the men who were in the battle come back and say, you know what, they don't get any of the stuff. They can have their wives and children, but they're going to go their own way. They're going to have to deal with themselves. And we're going to cut them off from what we have. And there's a mercilessness to them. But with David the king, there's a note of mercy. You see what it says there in verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who, who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And actually, I think this was true in, in Israel's uh, scriptures as well in other places of, you know, the Proverbs talk about feeding your enemy. If you have an enemy, like I imagine a prisoner of war or something, you're not just absolutely brutal with them. Now, they couldn't always have prisoners of war. They didn't have prisons and places to put them. But there is a, a spirit there that, that to not forget mercy. Now, this probably doesn't answer all the questions you have about the Israeli war in Palestine, but it is the historic Christian thinking on the topic 
And all of these efforts to minimize violence are at the heart of Jesus' kingdom. And so that leads to a third question that, that I want to address. So we've looked at how does this passage relate to the war in Israel, and what does it teach us about just war theory? But the final question I want to ask is, how does this passage point us to Jesus? How does this passage point us to Jesus? And I'll say that Jesus' teaching on warfare is complicated. Um, though the earliest Christians, many of them were pacifists, if you study the reasons for being pacifists, it's not because they thought that you could get rid of war. It was mostly because they thought Christians shouldn't serve in pagan armies because if you're in a pagan army, you're often going to have to do rites and ceremonies to pagan gods. And so, and pretty much since St. Augustine, around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, uh, Christians have believed in some form of just war theory. Aquinas also wrote on just war theory. But a few important passages from Jesus on the topic. Of course, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus clearly did not form an army. He opposed revolutionary zeal, you know, of the, the Jews who wanted to form an army and to take on the Romans. He resisted that. And one of the greatest statements of wisdom about warfare comes from our Lord when he said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. If you enter into that cycle of violence, it's going to be very hard to get out of it. But at one point in the Gospel of Luke, just before Jesus is going to be crucified, there's a, there's a time when two of his disciples ask him, hey, we have these two swords here. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, no, we don't use swords. He says, it's enough. Which is kind of an interesting statement. He's basically re realistic about the fact you're going to need to have self-defense. You live in a fallen world, and I'm not ignorant to that, but we're not forming an army. And so those swords are just enough. Why can warfare never be the solution to the world's problems? Well, I think there's one verse in this passage that gives us a hint, and it's there in verse 22. You see what it says? Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said. And so here I are, we're reading about these terrible Amalekites. They're stealing women and children, just like Hamas. And then we read about David's men, and we find out that among David's men, there are wicked and worthless men there as well. And actually, those, that word for worthless appears many times in 1 Samuel. And worthless men are violent, brutal men that are judged by God. And we're tempted to say, David's men were the righteous ones in this passage, and the Amalekites are the evil ones. But what we actually find is that there's evil on both sides. And it reminds me of the famous quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the Soviet dissident, outspoken critic of communism. This is what Solzhenitsyn said. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The war is within each one of us. And the great limit to warfare is that neither side is ultimately righteous. And this is where this sermon touches on the Christmas story, because when you read the Christmas story, you know when, uh, when the baby Jesus was born and Mary and Joseph went up to Jerusalem to bring him to Jerusalem, there was a prophecy that was spoken over him by Simeon to, to Mary. And, and this is what he said. He said, Behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposing. And then he says these great words. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The only hope for peace in the world is when human beings come to the child of Mary, the true king of the world. That each one of us would fall under his sword that cuts open not our bodies but our hearts and reveals the evil and darkness and violence in all of us and shines into us his light that we become a people of peace. And so even as we grieve the tragedies that we see in the images from the Middle East and even as we try to understand a Christian understanding of just war theory, at the end of the day, our only hope is in Christ. He is the only hope for the Israelis. He is the only hope for the Palestinians. He's the only hope for their conflict that has gone on and on and on, and he is the only hope for us. May he come and make wars cease to the ends of the earth. O Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how wise your word is so far beyond our understanding. And Lord, uh, it is our one hope that Jesus is the true king of the world, the king of all kings. And it is our prayer, Lord, that the nations of the world would bow their knee to him, that they would turn from their wicked ways and know the peace, the shalom that is found being your people. And Lord, we thank you for the tremendous love that Jesus showed to your enemies, that um, he himself fell under the sword to pay the price for our violence. And Lord, he has reconciled us to you. And so, Lord, would you make us a people of peace? And would the peace start in our own homes? Would the peace start in this church? Would this, the peace start in our relationships and with our neighbors? And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.